Um, one other ministry I want to mention that I'm excited about, and I hear um, Russ and Tara Edwards talk about a lot, and that is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, you can find this flyer out on the table, um, out in the foyer, and it's a, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes kickoff, and it's this Thursday, August the 12th, at Faith Christian Community. A guest speaker, Scott Cooper, who's the FCA Vice President. And uh, I would just encourage you, if you love sports and you love to share Christ and make disciples, this could be a great venue for you to spread um, your wings in ministry. See Russ Edwards or pick up one of these flyers and be a part of that this Thursday. All right, well, uh, just as a time to uh, fellowship together and get to know each other more, stand up now, shake each other's hands and get to know each other. Say hi and greet each other in the Lord. All right, let's, uh, let's take our seats again and <clears throat> dig into the Word. One other thing I wanted to say is a, a special thank you to Grace Christian School. You can see that they are um, finishing off our new paving of our parking lot. And I say it that way because the monsoon season of Alaska has sort of uh, held back uh, you know, the finishing of this project. But we're so grateful for Grace Christian School um, providing resources that way so we can have a smoothed out parking lot that will soon be iced over. But we are <laughs> we're, we're definitely glad that, uh, that, we, that we do have um, that partnership so we can kind of share resources that way. So be sure to, to um, sp- say a special thanks to them. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a great prayer. These words are tracks for us to run on that the Lord has given us that help us to pray. A lot of times we don't know categories to pray, what to pray. Perhaps we feel the stranglehold of circumstances that are sort of sucking the life out of us and we're just kind of wordless. We, we don't know what direction to pray or where to begin. And these phrases here are given to us as a precious gift for us to pray along. And as I've put it, we're looking at six mile markers that we traverse when we pray. And we should pray all of these. We've looked at three of them in detail so far, and we're going to look at the final three this morning. You know, in premarital counseling, you cover a lot of things. You cover issues A to Z to try to equip and prepare young couples for marriage and for life. And sort of the top three areas that I like to cover are the three final petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It just sort of turned out that way. As I was studying these categories, I thought, man, these are sort of the handholds for life as you climb the the cliff face towards maturity. Whether you're a married couple or a single person, these are areas that Jesus wants you to be praying about all the time. 
These are the priorities that Jesus is listing for us to pray about all the time. He could have said so many things for us to pray about. Millions of other categories for us to think about. And he brought up our daily bread, seeking forgiveness, and making it through times of temptation. Or, put another way, handling your money, (laughs) reconciling conflicts, and your personal walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, those are some basic categories that you need to be praying about all the time to be growing spiritually. And your life, your marriage, your household will sort of be dictated by the success and failure of these categories. You ever think about the anxiety that being in debt brings? Handling your money? You ever think about the anxiety that builds and mounts in our hearts when we have unreconciled conflict? Do you ever think about the pressure that you have when you know you're not right with the Lord, when you're falling to temptation? Jesus wants you to be praying about these areas for your own life and for the lives of other people. Money, forgiveness, and the condition of your soul. Well, let's look at the first petition. The first petition that we're seeing this morning is really the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, and it's verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. This is such an earthy part of the prayer. The first three petitions are so lofty that for the prayer to suddenly turn the corner and talk about your daily bread almost seems like it doesn't fit. Think about it. We're praying that God's transcendent, glorious name would be hallowed, would be forever made holy in heaven and on earth, and that his kingdom would come down, that people would be saved from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We're praying for the souls of of men and women to be regenerated so God's kingdom would advance. We're praying about God's secret and revealed will being done on earth as it's being done in heaven, the glory of heaven for that to come down. Those are pretty lofty prayer requests, but they really set the stage for petition number four, which is, God, please provide for me to eat today and the next few days. Give me my daily bread. That's what this prayer request is all about. God who holds the whirling worlds and spinning stars in the palm of his hand is concerned as to whether or not you're going to eat. An early church father, Jerome, he couldn't stomach Um, this kind of interpretation, no pun intended. But he couldn't stomach the idea that, that it means for your daily bread as something that you are just waiting for provision, something that would be on this sort of earthly level. He was saying that the bread had to be something super spiritualized, like um, a, a miracle bread that would rain down from heaven, perhaps like uh, the bread that was provided for the wandering children of Israel through the wilderness in Exodus 16, the bread that tastes like wafers made of honey. He called it the super substantial bread. The Roman Catholic Church takes this phrase, daily bread, and calls it the Holy Eucharist. But really, this is God providing for our daily needs. God really does care about your individual need. He does. 
I think in our society that's supercharged with credit cards and all kinds of notes that we pay off and, you know, deferring money back and forth and side to side, sometimes it can be blurred in our thinking that God is really providing for you this day to eat, to be clothed, to have a place to go to sleep at night. That's what he's doing for all of us who are his children, and he cares about us in that way. You know, I like a lot of different kinds of bread. <laughs> Probably you do too. I like, uh, I, I couldn't pronounce it first hour, focaccia bread. I like focaccia bread. I like French bread. I like sourdough bread quite a bit, dipping it in the potato soup. I do, and you do too. But you know what? This is talking on a more uh, subsistence level, the level of just survival. God provides food for you to live by. He does. He does. If God didn't, we would starve. He's given us a world. He's given us um, perhaps employment. He's given us a means for other people to take care of us by giving us food to eat. You know, even today, there's the slang word for bread, which means money. Like, give me some bread, man. That, that's give me some money. And, and that's what this is talking about. It's talking about how God provides basics for us. Daily bread. And maybe this even opens up more when you understand the culture to which Jesus was teaching. He was teaching on a mountainside to his disciples and he said, pray for daily bread. And he was talking to people who were by and large day laborers. People who lived from day to day earning a paycheck that day so they could buy food for their family for the next day or for that evening. Day laborers. I was in seminary at, uh, in Los Angeles, and I would drive around town, and if you were up early, you would see a lot of day laborers waiting on the side of the road to be picked up that day for a construction job or something else, and they would be paid at the end of the day, and thus it would start over the next day, and they would just earn their money that day so they could buy food that night for their family or for the next day. And That's how this culture in Jesus' day lived. They would receive a denarii at the end of their day's labor, and that denarii would be enough for their subsistence, enough to feed their family. So they were living for that next job so they could make that next amount of money to buy food. The bread that they would have bought would not have been um, filled with additives and preservatives. It was made that day, and so it really was daily bread. They weren't buying the Wonder Loaf and sticking it into their freezer, right? It was daily bread. I don't recommend, by the way, freezing bread, but some people like to do that. Then they have it out, and it gets kind of mushy. I don't like that, by the way, but it's beside the point. I, I actually would like this kind of bread more, which is without the preservatives, kind of like the European still European culture still has, with, with just daily bread to eat. Without daily bread, by the way, we would be very, very anxious. There are a lot of people who live, even in our culture today, waiting for their next meal. They do. And I was reminded of uh, sort of some... Children that were taken care of as a relief effort after the Korean War. There was uh, this sort of situation after, like, like after the Vietnam War and also after wars in Bosnia, where children are left as orphans. And in the Korean War, we sent relief aid over and we found that many of the orphaned children were very anxious 
And as they interviewed the kids, they were asking, why, why are you upset? Why won't you sleep at night? And it was because they were concerned as to whether or not they were going to eat the very next day. Even though they were being provided for three meals a day, they were concerned that they would not have bread the next morning. And so what these relief workers did is they gave each child a little crust of bread to hold in their hand at night. Whether they ate it or not was inconsequential. It was just the knowledge, like a security blanket, that they were going to have bread the next morning was something that got them through, and they began to sleep, and they began to rest. And Jesus is saying in these words that we have that same promise. God will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He gives us daily bread to live by. You might say, that's hard for me to totally apply. Well, it might not be. Is job security ever on your mind? Do you ever think about, man, am I going to stay employed or still be employed in this sort of economic downturn? I know that Alaska is a, a more stable place. Where I just came from before coming here a year ago, people were losing jobs. People who had been employed with companies for 25 or 30 years all of a sudden were given um, notice that they were no longer going to be employed. I mean, that's a reality for a lot of people. And that can weigh on a person's mind. And that's where we need to apply verses like these. Give us our daily bread. Do you have credit card debt? You know, no show of hands is necessary. <laughs> I looked online and it's a, you know, it's a sad part of our culture, but many people have at least seven to ten to $15,000 in credit card debt. And I know that that weighs on people's minds. It does. It's a difficult thing to think through. And we're not supposed to worry, but we are supposed to be humble as we sort of dig our way out of indebtedness, right? We're not allowed to worry. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. We're supposed to cast our cares upon the Lord and live in a day-by-day mindset as the Lord provides. Let me just say this. If you are in some serious debt, you can see me or see um, you know, other elders or leaders in our church or people you respect and just humble yourself to those people and say, hey, you know, I need someone to help me climb out. You know, it's, it's a great thing to go to someone who has expertise in financial planning for them to lay out your life on a single sheet of paper, on a spreadsheet, and give you tracks to run on to climb out. So I don't want you to sit hopeless, you know, with that sort of idea of being in debt. The Lord can even use the body of Christ to get you kind of back where you're living more in a day-to-day mindset rather than uh, a big-picture indebtedness mindset. You need to live, live in humility this way. Here's a few take-home points. I'm going to give some take-home points up front, under this point, and then at the end. First of all, when you're thinking about physical needs and spiritual needs, it is no less spiritual to pray for physical needs. You should pray for physical things, and you should pray in specificity, and even in prayer groups, don't be afraid to pray for specific needs. Sometimes it's more humble to pray for something that's going on in your life that's tangible than praying for more ethereal things or more spiritual things. You know, sometimes people look down on somebody who's asking for a specific need to be met, even some money to be given to him or her, provided And they might think, man, they're not praying for souls. They're not praying for the glory of God. They're praying for $25 to fill their gas tank. Well, that's just as spiritual a prayer request as praying for anything else. 
And oftentimes it's more humble to pray along the lines of needing daily bread. Shouldn't look down at people who are praying for the mundane things in life. First Timothy 5.8 says that if we don't provide for our own or for our household, it's as if we've denied the faith and we're worse than an unbeliever. Also, secondly, and I kind of alluded to this already, we need to pray in specificity. Pray specifically and expect God to answer specifically. You say, why do I need to do that? Well, praying for your daily bread could sound like a blanket, generic request. But if you pray specifically, guess what's going to happen? God's going to show up with a specific answer. Now, sometimes he says no, but sometimes he answers, you know, down to the penny what you need or down to the penny in terms of some need that you were asking for in precise ways where you can say that is the hand of God providing for my life, right? You've seen it happen before. And sometimes we miss the blessing by not praying specifically. That's where you you see in the word daily Praying daily, it's the idea of praying specifically for that need on that day, not just generically. Third, God's promise to provide does not undo your responsibility to work. Just got to slide that in, you know. All right, we have a culture that, that tends towards passivity. We've got the TV watching culture instead of the working culture. And it's important for us to, uh, to work Paul was addressing this in first, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. And he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That sounds harsh, but Paul was trying to get people to be motivated. The reason that God provides our daily bread is because we've worked for it. We've earned it. And sometimes we forego our responsibility. And he was addressing a church culture that had become idle, that had let themselves out of the idea of working by saying, look, Jesus is returning, the world's going to burn up, so I don't need to really work anyway. And by doing that, they were missing a blessing of working. It's what God provides for us. It's like in the garden, God provided Adam and Eve with the responsibility, Adam, for him to name the animals. And that was before the fall. So work was redemptive. It was something God gave as a gift and then ultimately was cursed (laughs) that we'd have to earn our living by the sweat of our brow, Genesis 3.19. But work in its origination was for us. Number four, and I alluded to this too, being in debt does not give you license to worry. We're going to cover Matthew 6.34, how we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, recognizing that God will add everything that we need We need to be humble by our debt, but we don't need to worry about it because God still owns it all. And he can give us tracks to run on to climb out. Number five, gratitude sanctifies your food. Say, what? What does that mean? Well, why do you pray at the dinner table before you receive your food? Is that just out of tradition or habit? Is it to impress your kids or to try to teach them, you know, to just get into a prayer habit? Well, it should be more than that. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, 4 through 5 addresses this. And it talks about how God sanctified food because he created it through his spoken word. And we dignify that by praying a, a prayer of thanksgiving for what he's given us. Paul says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This simply means that when you pray, you know what you're doing? 
You're saying, God, you made that food so that I could eat today. Now, some, prayer, some prayers you know, might get more spiced up in, depending on what kind of food is put before you or not. <laughs> you might like some food more than other foods, so you're more grateful. But we need to be grateful for all of it, no matter what it is. We need to say, Lord, thank you that you created this for me to have. We're grateful for, I always pray, you know, and include Judy in that prayer and thank the Lord that she made it, you know, that she defrosted it. She did things with that food that I would never be able to do, you know, to make it as great as it is. I mean, she does that stuff. And I'm just, you know, I'm just foolish in the kitchen. I have no idea what I'm doing in the kitchen. Unless I'm scrubbing something, I don't know what I'm doing. And some people do, you know, that there are men that cook and cook well. I'm not one of them. So I include Judy in the prayer, and I thank the Lord that God used her to, to provide this meal, and I thank the Lord for what she's done. But I also thank the Lord that he provided. Just as he created food for us to eat, out of nothing, he provided the food for us so that we could have it for our meals. All right, those, that's the first of the last petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Here's the next petition. And that is found in verse 12. This is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The petitions here are moving from physical to spiritual. These are very practical petitions. And I know that this one is near and dear to your heart. Because you probably in your lifetime have struggled with unreconciled relationships. And you probably also struggled with guilt. And the Lord gives us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sin debt towards him so that we can also have a soft heart towards other people and forgive them in kind. The word debt here is used. Your translation might be trespasses, but I think debt is most appropriate because when we sin against God, you know what? We are in God's moral debt. And when people sin against us or we sin against them, we are in each other's moral debt. We are indebted to people or they are indebted to us. And we need grace and we need to give grace. You know, some people don't believe that you can forgive other people unless they ask for it. It's the, kind of the theological category called transactional forgiveness. There has to be a transaction of dialogue for there to be forgiveness granted. And I don't think that's the way to define it biblically. Forgiveness, first and foremost, is being willing to release a debt from someone else. And I think that when we understand the grace of God that's given to us, how we are first forgiven, that we should be in our hearts prompted to be soft towards other people and forgive the debt in our hearts towards people and not hold a grudge against them. You might say, well, yeah, that's fine to do it in your heart, but don't you still need to reconcile? Yes, absolutely. We need to reconcile our relationships with people when they are broken, but we can start first and foremost by releasing the debt against people. And I think that's why Jesus is saying that we are to constantly be saying, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we are forgiving our debt, the debts of other people towards us. This is Ephesians chapter 4. You might turn over there. Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Here it is. 
being tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not talking about a mode of reconciliation. This is talking on the level of the heart. That just as God in Christ has washed all of your sins away, that's what should prompt us to be tender-hearted towards other people. You look at the verse preceding, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let go of wrath, let go of the bitterness, let go of the hate in your heart and remember the cross and the love that was given to you and then melt towards other people and forgive them. You know, it would be frightening to think that God was holding our lack of forgiveness towards others against us. You know, some people actually live that way and they say, look, unless you forgive other people and, and have done it perfectly, then you're not going to receive forgiveness at all. Almost looking at a verse like this, like it's a tit for tat kind of thing where, you know, if you, if you haven't forgiven people, then God's not going to forgive you. And that's not the point at all. That's not looking at this in terms of the heart. The point here is simply this. If you're someone who is forgiving other people, being merciful, then that means that you are truly repentant in the first place to your God. In other words, if your heart is soft towards people this way, horizontally, then that means that your heart is soft towards God vertically. If, if you're not willing to forgive other people, if you're not someone who's a forgiving person, if you're kind of a bitter, grudge-holding person, then it probably means that you're not really repentant before your God in the first place. And God's looking at that going, yeah, this is not working out. There needs to be grace that's sought from your Heavenly Father, and that is the same grace that's going to be given to other people. Matthew 18 talks about the parable of the unforgiving servant, and this is sort of a hand-in-glove story to illustrate this principle. I'll just kind of breeze through it. There's so much there. It's eight, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Peter, he came up to Jesus and said, hey, should I forgive someone seven times if they keep sinning against me? Kind of following the rabbinical teachings, sort of the commentary on the Old Testament, you know, should it go seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. So in other words, you need to just not have a limit to how many times you would forgive other people. Then he gives the story of the king who wished to settle the accounts with his servants. The servant comes in and he owed him 10,000 talents, which is sort of a lifetime's worth of debt that he could never pay off. A fortune. The master ordered him to be sold because he couldn't pay it. And his wife and his children also. The servant fell down on his knees, imploring him, saying, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. In other words, the servant was just opening his heart to his master. And the master, out of pity, verse 27, forgave him the debt. It's a condition of the heart. The master looked down and had pity on him. But that pity did not melt the heart of that servant enough. He didn't realize the grace that had been given to him, and it didn't play out in his life. Does that sound familiar? So easy to forget the forgiveness we've been given in the cross, and then we we hold things against people. Well, that's what this guy did. He goes out, and his servant comes up to him, and his servant owes him 
a hundred denarii, it's just a hundred days of, of work, something that would be easily paid off. And so he, in his arrogance, begins to choke this servant and say, pay what you owe. And so the servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sound familiar? He says, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused this and threw him in prison. Ultimately, the other servants there ratted him out. They were greatly distressed and they went to the master. And the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Again, it's a matter of the heart. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now look at this, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The issue is the heart. This is not talking about method in terms of the method of forgiveness and the method of reconciliation. This is talking about what the word forgiveness means in the original language. It's to release something. It's to let something go. And when you let things go against people in your heart and then you talk to them, watch how well it goes from there. But when you hold on to something and say, oh, you know, I'll forgive you if you ask. Ask in the right way. Say the magic formula and then I'll let it go. It's not going to go very well, right? You ever try that? I don't recommend it. Let it go. Seek the cross. I mean, what has God done for us? Colossians chapter 2 um, talks of this. Look over in Colossians chapter 2. talks about our sin debt. This is a moral debt. A moral debt that was canceled out for us. Colossians 2 talks about how we were can- our debt was canceled. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and, your, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Watch this, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I mean, what a picture. Jesus was nailed to the cross. And and Paul superimposes the picture of your sin debt in that moment where the spike is going through Jesus. It's going through your debt against a holy God. It's canceled. Now, does God remember your sins? Well, you know, there's references to God forgetting our sins. You know what the point is of all of those references about how God is dealing with your sins now is that he's not holding any of your sins ever against you again. That's what's going on in the mind of God. You're free in the grace of God. You know, the moral debt that we accrue against our God is serious. I think sometimes when we think of the word debt, we just think in terms of a monetary picture, something that we owe with um, legal tender. But it's deeper than that. There's a scenario that sort of brings us out of a little boy that would go into an ice cream shop. And he asked the waitress, hey, I'd like, you know, a double dip cone. Little tiny child saying, I'd like that ice cream. And the the waitress gives him the ice cream cone. And she says, that'll be $2, please. 
and he begins to cry because he was only given one dollar by mommy and so he's crying I, mommy only gave me one dollar i don't know what to do and right and so you're standing there in that situation and what are you going to do well you're going to you're going to f- reach down in your pocket and try to find a dollar for the little boy right to make this right that we're talking about monetary debt at this point you you give the legal tender over to the waitress and she has to take it and this whole dilemma goes away Scenario B is this. The little boy goes into the ice cream parlor and asks the waitress for a double dip cone. And she says, that'll be $2, please. And he realizes he's short. And what does he do? He, he takes his cone and he runs out the front door and leaves. And she's saying, stop, thief. And as he runs out, he runs into the arms of a police officer that's walking by on his beat. And the police officer, hearing the waitress cry, stop, thief, brings the boy back in to make this right and figure it out. And the lady explains that he ran out and stole the ice cream cone. And at that moment, you're you're sitting there watching this and you're reaching down in your pocket again and you pull, pull out $2 and you say, look, let's make this whole thing go away. He doesn't need to go to juvenile hall. Just take the $2. Well, at that point, the waitress is posed with a question of whether or not she's going to press charges. Because the monetary sort of um, relief isn't real relief in that point because this isn't monetary debt now. This is moral debt. This is sin debt. And so just paying the waitress off isn't necessarily going to make it go away. You know, no one can pay for our sins with Christian service. No, we can't pay for our own sins before our holy God with Christian service by being good enough. We can't do it. The only way we can be forgiven is by the grace of God that has been extended to us. Our moral debts have been subsumed in the cross. Isn't that great? Can I get an amen for that? Our sin debt is canceled. It's gone. We were the ones who stole, who ran, and God gave us mercy. He did. Let's look at the last petition. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. At first blush, this is one of the most confusing phrases in the New Testament to me. (laughs) It just is. I've always been confused by this phrase because it kind of asks some questions in my mind. First of all, why would we ever have to ask God, please don't lead us into temptation? I mean... How does a holy and loving God ever want to lead me into temptation? So I would have to ask him not to do that. Those questions are what come into my mind. Well, first of all, let me just answer it this way. James chapter 1 verse 13 and 14 clarifies to us that God does not tempt ever anyone to sin. He, he, He can't do it because it's contrary to his nature and he won't do it. Let no one say when he is tempted, verse 13 of James 1, it's the same word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In other words, temptations don't go to God because he's holy and they cannot come from him. So he never provokes us, he never causes us to sin, and can't be held responsible when we sin. So where does sin come from? Sin comes from our hearts. 
it originates from inside of us. James 1 goes on to say that each one is tempted when he is lured or drawn away by his own sinfulness. That's where temptation comes from, internally. Externally, temptation comes from another source, and that is, you could say, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It comes from our flesh, and it also comes from Satan and his world around us. James 4, verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So you have sin temptation from inside, James 1, and then you have sin temptation from the outside where Satan is tempting us. So with that in mind, now you come back to verse 13 and you say, how do we make sense of this verse? I mean, didn't Jesus lead, didn't the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Aren't we given Trials? Doesn't God bring us into trials to be tested? That's the same word in James 1 2. Same word for temptation and testing. It just kind of depends on the context for how you will translate that. God brings us into fiery tests that I read about early on in the service, 1 Peter chapter 1. Abraham was tested as he was told to slay his son on Mount Moriah. Isn't all of that for our own good? Isn't the whole book of Job about God's testing and allowing Satan to test Job and Job persevering through tests? So how do we reconcile this? Lead us not into temptation. If God brings us into testing for our own good, why are we supposed to pray not to be tested? And by the way, God doesn't tempt us to sin. Well, to understand this verse, you have to, you have to begin with the final phrase... And let the second half of the verse basically define the first half. It says, but deliver us from evil. That's really the prayer request. Lord, deliver me from evil. And where is the evil? In my own heart and Satan himself. That's what we should be praying about all the time. Lord, as you lead me, deliver me from myself. Apart from Satan, I am my own worst enemy, (laughs) right? That's what he wants us to pray about. It's it's sort of the, the lesser phrase, lead us not into temptation, is to really amplify the greater phrase and the greater request, which is deliver us from evil. It's sort of a literary device that's used here. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, as you're guiding us down our path, let my sin not overwhelm me. Give me the grace to fight against my own sin. That's what this phrase means. And by the way, as I'm fighting my own flesh, deliver me from the ultimate enemy, who is the evil one. And some people will translate this verse. The New King James gets it right where it says, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the masculine usage of the word evil there, which connotes the being of the devil. This is what Jesus prayed for, by the way, in the high priestly prayer of John 17. This is sort of in living color, what it looks like to pray the Lord's Prayer. And John 17, 15 is where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Deliver us from evil. That's what he prayed for his disciples. 1 John 2.13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Or deliver me from Satan. You say, I haven't seen Satan in a while. 
you know what? You might be fighting against Satan more than you ever thought. I've heard some people say, you know, Satan, he, he's too busy. He's, he's working on, you know, John Piper or MacArthur or Swindoll or Charles Stanley. Or I, well, he's not messing with me. Well, why does James 4, 7 say, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Why does Ephesians 6 say that the devil has schemes to, to twist up your thinking? Why are there, as 1 Timothy chapter 4 puts it, the doctrines of demons that are out there to mess us up? What's going on? Satan is more involved in this world and in twisting truth than we could ever imagine. He wants to anesthetize us. He wants us to be numb. He wants us to be kind of just oblivious to him, where we're not really thinking about him. He wants us to ignore satanic influence in our lives. I would imagine if we sort of had this kind of kumbaya moment where we all got real transparent and told our our stories that we would begin to talk about where we have been shaken in our faith at one point or the other. Where you might be sitting there thinking, I don't know for certain that I'm a Christian or not. I'm here and maybe that's a testimony of my faith, but wow, I'm struggling. And that could very well be the temptation of Satan himself or his minions getting in your head. And wanting you to doubt who you are spiritually. I mean, if you tie all of, if you tie verses 12 and 13 together with verses 14 and 15, Jesus is rolling right into the idea that if you forgive others, your father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive you. I'm kind of borrowing on a, a take-home point that I'm going to re-say. But basically, this sort of temptation in verse 13 that we're praying about could be the temptation to not forgive. You bear a grudge like that and you grow bitter in your heart, you're going to be rendered useless in the kingdom of God. Sidelined. Some people might think that they're Christians and they hang on to these sort of conflicts and are unwilling to forgive. And they'll wake up maybe one day in eternity in hell, never having become a Christian in the first place. This is satanic, satanic attack. Deliver us from the evil one. Lord, forgive me my debts and let me be this gracious person who forgives other people and lead me not into temptation. Help me fight my own worst enemy, which is me, and then deliver me from the evil one. So this verse is talking about, we sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God, and that's written by Martin Luther, and he was acutely aware of the presence of Satan. He talked about the, the anfectung, which is the unbridled assault against him to try to make him compromise or fall into despair or to doubt the faith. And he got so wrapped up with this that one time he actually threw an inkwell across the room and splashed it up against the wall, thinking that Satan was there attacking him as he studied the word. We need to be aware of these things. All right, a few points as we close. Um, I mentioned this one already. Temptation from verse 13. It could be a direct link to verses 14 and 13. Don't underestimate Satan's involvement when we are bitter. Number two, to forgive simply means to let something go. And we talked about this as well. It's just letting sins go. Number three. Satan's accusations or lies are alive and well. So combat these accusations with what? The truth. The word. 
the word. If your life is pure and your doctrine is right, your doctrine is pure, let's put it that way, you're going to be armed for Satan's attacks. You'll have the truth. It keeps your head on your shoulders. It keeps you focused in the right way. Number four, God will never put more on you than he puts in you to bear it up. You know, you might say, you don't know how much temptation I'm dealing with, and I don't. But God gives you his Holy Spirit and truth and grace to endure through your own situations, your own temptations, your own trials. So lean on the Lord this week and this year as we are armed now with the Lord's Prayer, with tracks to run on. Let's, let's kind of covenant with God to pray more precisely, more powerfully than ever before as we've studied and meditated on these phrases. Let's stand together for our final prayer. If you need any counsel or help, if anything has prompted you, I want to make myself available up front. We have counselors. We want to meet you and greet you. If you want to just uh, sort of shake my hand and get to know me, if you're new and want to get to know uh, different leaders, I'd be happy to introduce you to people and love to fellowship with you in that way. We have some coffee and things in the back. We want you to stay around and talk and interact and see sort of the last, you know, post Um, noon 20 minutes is an opportunity to to just ask each other how you're doing in the Lord. Make this one giant care group um, as our Sunday kind of comes to a close. Also have an information table over there if you're looking for resources, um, both spiritually or for the church, or knowledge about the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word, and we pray, God, that we would pray um, energized prayers that we would cling to the promise that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In Jesus' name, amen.